Mahapurusham Ishwaram Sadhyatmam Sadhibhutam Cha Sadhidaivam Cha Sadhava Pure yogis worship you, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, by conceiving you in the threefold form comprising the living entities, the material elements that constitute the living entities' bodies and the controlling deities of those elements. Trayacha vidyaya kechet tvamvai vaitanika dvija Yajante vitathar yajyair nana rupa marakyaya. Brahmins who follow the regulations concerning the three sacred fires worship you by chanting mantras from the three Vedas and performing elaborate fire fire sacrifices for the various demigods who have many forms and names. Purport. Orakrura has now described how those who follow the paths of Sankhya, Yoga, and the three Vedas worship the Supreme Lord in different ways. In the various places where the Vedas appear to recommend that one worship Indra, Varuna, or other demigods, these demigods are stated to be supreme. But at the same time, The Vedas state that there is one supreme controller, the absolute truth. That is Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead who expands his potency through material creation into the forms of the demigods. Thus, worship of the demigods goes to him through the indirect method of karmakanda or fruit of religious rituals. Ultimately, however, one who wants to achieve eternal perfection should worship the Lord directly in full Krishna consciousness. Hare Krishna. Thank you for being with us today. We are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 10. Chapter 40, entitled The Prayers of Akrura, text 4 and 5. Many of the great mysteries of the Srimad Bhagavatam are manifested here in this extraordinary narration. In the path of bhakti, our emotions, our feelings, 
are not negated. They are not killed or extinguished, but rather they are purified in harmony with the true nature of the soul. And thus they are methods by which we express the love of the soul and by which Krishna, the Supreme Soul, reciprocates. Beyond peace, beyond liberation from suffering, the Srimad Bhagavatam teaches is Prem, which is the ecstasy of the love of the soul for God, who has many names and who is all beautiful, all attractive, and the ultimate supreme lover, which is what the name Krishna means. When Krishna descends to this earth, he not only speaks in a way to remind us of the eternal religious principles that are universal, that are beyond time and space, beyond geographical differences, beyond various manifestations of religions. There are eternal religious principles. The Bhagavad Gita speaks those principles. And great thinkers, scholars, and realized sages from all over the world throughout time have studied the Gita. Krishna also engages in beautiful pastimes, in his original transcendental form, but in many ways taking the role like a human being so that his devotees could reciprocate him as their lover, as their friend, as their child. Akrora is a great heroic, like a prince. He's a warrior from a great dynasty of the Yadus. And he happens to be the uncle of Krishna. Kamsa, who was such a tyrant, who was literally murdering countless people, imprisoning his own father, torturing his own sister and brother-in-law, just so that he could gain power, control, that he was not entitled to. Ugrasena is his father. He was the king. But Kamsa threw him in prison and took the throne. When Kamsa heard a voice that the eighth son of Devaki and Basudev, his own sister and brother-in-law, 
would be the cause of his death. He imprisoned his own sister. She had six children in the prison and he murdered each one of them as soon as they were born. And the seventh Balaram was mystically by Yogamaya's potency transferred to the womb of Rohini in Vrindavan. Gokul. And the eighth son, Krishna. Narada, Narada Muni told Kamsa was ultimately transferred by Vasudev to the house of Navadandya Shoda. Before getting that specific message, Kamsa killed every child born at that time in all the areas around. And he sent so many powerful mystics who could take various hideous forms like Putana, Aga, Baka. And each one came especially to destroy all the children and particularly Krishna. But Krishna, who never even used a weapon, who was sometimes an infant baby days old, other times a tender little child, with his own little hands or through other ways, he would somehow or other liberate all of them out of his kindness because they were seeing Krishna at the time that they died. <clears throat> they were like disease. They were murderers. They were thieves. They were so arrogant. They were Kamsa's accomplices. And they came to kill. But like a disease, Krishna, he liberated them. And because they were seeing Krishna at that last moment, they attained liberation. Their, soul, their souls reached that state beyond birth and death. That even great religious people and yogis strive their whole lives for. Krishna was giving to them such a concession. Kamsa was furious. When he found out, finally, absolutely for sure, that Vasudev and Devaki actually brought little baby Krishna to Gokul. And Krishna was that enemy that he was seeking. He was furious. He immediately wanted to kill his brother and sister. But Narada said, no, no, that will make things only worse. Krishna's the one you're after, not them. If you kill them, then Krishna will hide from you. Then you'll never find him. Kamsa was very clever. He wanted to bring Krishna to Mathura, where he would be right in his presence for the first time. Kamsa was constantly thinking of Krishna, but he never saw him. He just heard about him. But he was thinking about him in fear. It's amazing how various emotions can consume our minds. On the highest level, love consumes our minds. 
in this material realm, sometimes love is um, manifested in a shadow, perverted form, in the form of lust, or passionate, sensual desire. And we've seen throughout the ages, and we've heard so many songs, how that passion can consume one's mind. On a higher level, there's deep affection, love, how it manifests in the world in that way. Not the passion of the senses, but a heart-to-heart connection. How a mother could be consumed with affection for her child, or vice versa, or even friends or lovers. And on the highest, most fully developed and inclusive level, the origin of all love is how we become consumed by love for God, for Krishna, when that awakens in our heart, which can only take place by God's grace, when we are willing to receive it by the life we choose to live. Chanting the holy names of the Lord, Japa, Kirtan, hearing Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, living with morality, character, in a spirit of seva, living with a mood to serve rather than to be the proprietor, the controller, the enjoyer, to serve God, to serve God's children, to serve God's creation without selfish motivation or interruption by any inevitable obstacles and challenges. That's a life of bhakti. And through such a life, we express to Krishna the sincerity of our will to love and serve him. When we follow these principles sincerely, then by Krishna's mercy, he delivers us from greed and anger and arrogance and envy and actually reveals himself. And how does he reveal himself? He, we actually can experience his love. And then naturally our love awakens. When we are touched to actually understand, experience Krishna's love, which is always there, but because we're not tuned into it, our consciousness is distracted and diverted to endless other things. So although Krishna's love is from within and without, everywhere, we have no experience of it directly. But it's always there. It's like a mother and father always love their children. But if the children become very reckless, become alcoholics or drug addicts or just trying to find some pleasures in this world, we can completely forget our parents' love. And in that forgetfulness, we lose the benefits. Krishna's love is all for everyone. Krishna never forgets anyone. The Atma, the soul, the eternal living force within us, 
whether it's in the body of a lower species or any type of human being, Krishna's always Paramatma with us. He never forgets us for a moment, personally, individually, forever. And in his remembrance, he loves us. When we open our hearts to receive his love through bhakti, when we clear away all the dust and the dirt of all of our selfish, arrogant ways, then our love naturally awakens because Krishna is all attractive. So that's very consuming love. But there's another human emotion that can be just as consuming. Fear. When we're really afraid, we're consumed by that fear. It overcomes us, it obsesses us. It may be fear of someone attacking us, fear of death, fear of disease, fear of something harmful having to, happening to someone we love. <coughs> Nothing else really matters in our life when we're consumed by fear. Have, you, have any of you had that experience? If you're in an airplane and all of a sudden it starts going and the pilot says, we've lost control. (laughs) We're going to try to make an emergency landing wherever we can. Are you thinking about the stock market? (laughs) Are you thinking about what your brother or sister said to you five days ago. Fear consumes. So Narada Muni explained that any way we become absorbed in Krishna, ultimately we become purified. The gopis were, and Nanda, Jashoda, they were absorbed in Krishna even either as lover or child. And Kamsa, when he heard from Narada Muni that Krishna was the one that was destined to kill him, he was 24 hours a day remembering Krishna in fear. And he wanted, every other attempt failed, bring him here to Mathura. I'll have the champion most wrestlers of the universe, Chanura Mustak. I'll have the most powerful, dangerous elephant that he personally made great efforts to get, Kuvalayapita, or myself and all my armies, but we will destroy this Krishna. So he approached Akrura, who was a devotee of Krishna, who loved Krishna, and who he knew Krishna would love. He wanted someone to invite Krishna to come. And the invitation was for the Danur Yagya. Because Kamsa had this gigantic, incredible bow of Shiva. And there was going to be a celebration and a Yagya around the glories of that bow. 
and it would be a wonderful festival. Invite Nanda and Krishna and Balaram to come. And Kamsa is the king. And he was a cruel tyrant. So there's two things. One is if the king invites you to come, and he's a king like Kamsa, you have to come. Otherwise, you'll be destroyed. It's an insult if they don't come. So invite them. They have to come. Second of all, the king of Mathura, having this big festival, it's going to be very attractive. People want to come and see it. They will want to come. And third of all, if Akrura invites them, how could they resist? And Kamsa gave Akrura a brand new chariot to go. Here is Akrura. He knew exactly Kamsa's plan. It was a plan to murder them in the guise of inviting them to a festival. Why would Kurura want to bring that invitation? As he was riding his chariot to Gokul, Vrindavan, Nandagang in specific, even he was thinking, Krishna, although he's appearing as a small boy living in Braj, he knows my love for him. He knows my motive. I'm doing this only to please him. And in this situation where there was this intense apparent contradiction He was coming as the dearest loving friend on behalf of of the worst enemy who hated him. That's a contradiction, isn't it? He was coming as the menial servant representing Kamsa, whose only purpose was to murder Krishna and Balaram and everyone in Vrindavan. And in his heart, he's going there in a spirit of, of the most loving friend and devotee. So this um, stirring emotion in his mind really invoked intense, genuine, heartfelt prayers. And he was praying while he was driving his chariot, praying and praying and praying. I know Krishna will understand my purpose and my intent. He was surrendering his heart. His body, his mind, his words, his life, he was surrendering in a spirit of devotion for the pleasure of Krishna. In his mind, he knew he was not serving Kamsa, he was serving Krishna. And by the time he entered into Vrindavan, where there was the pastures, he was in such deep anticipation to see Krishna and Balaram. Whatever the reason, whatever the external excuse I'm coming to, I'm going to see Krishna face to face. 
Will he smile upon me? Will he glance upon me? Will he embrace me? Will he allow me to touch his feet? Of course, he will, because he knows my heart. Such anticipation. This was the mood he was entering, Vrindavan. His heart was like a blazing fire of anticipation to be in the presence of Krishna. And in that state, while he was on his chariot, as he was going through the pastures, he saw Krishna's footprints in the dust. There was a policy, you may say, among all the cows, the bulls, the deers, the humans, everyone, that wherever Krishna or Balaram's footprints were on the ground, they would never step over them or step on them because they considered them the most beautiful ornaments of all the earth. And they were unique footprints with beautiful um, symbols on them. So when Akrura saw the little footprint of Gopal in the dust of Braj. He became so ecstatic. He was seeing Krishna in the footprint. And he fell down from his chariot and rolled in the ground crying. You see, when we actually have this love, when we have this Lolyam, this eagerness, eagerness to serve the Lord, eagerness to be with the Lord. When that eagerness is in our heart, all those things that remind us of Krishna, we experience Krishna. Tadit. Krishna's paraphernalia. We see the footprint in the dust. We see the deity form is Krishna. We see anything that is connected to Krishna. And we feel Krishna's presence because that's the nature of love, because it awakens so much. Akrura was bathing the footprints with his tears of love. And soon after that, Krishna and Balaram stood before him. Akrura surrendered his life even though he's the uncle, he's the elder. And according to Vedic custom, the juniors touch the feet of the elder. And the elder embraces or blesses. But in this state, sometimes in the ecstasy of spontaneous love, we forget our position. And he bowed at the feet of Krishna and Balaram. And Krishna lifted him up and embraced him. And then brought him home and fed him nice prasad, gave him a nice place to sit, and inquired from Akrura, what is your purpose of coming? And he said, Kamsa has sent me. He sent me to invite you and your father and 
the men of Brindavan to come to the Danur Yagya, where you'll get to see this great bow and the sacrifice around this bow. And he also told Krishna, but Kamsa wants to kill you. So he's going to have a big elephant that's going to try to kill you. And also he has his wrestling match with Chanur and Mushtika, where you're going to... You're little boys, and they're gigantic, mountain-like heroes. Never defeated. Do you know what Krishna did when he heard that? When he heard that Kamsa wanted to kill him, he laughed. (laughs) He laughed really hard. And even Balaram was laughing. Poor Krishna, even though he's playing the role of a little boy. Kamsa, Chanura, Mustika, Kuvalyapita, they're all insignificant. And then Akurura told Krishna and Balaram that you have to come because Kamsa is torturing your mother and father, Vasudeva and Devaki. Don't you know that you were born of Vasudeva and Devaki and Vasudeva transferred you to the house of Nanda when you were just infant the night you were born? And now Narada Muni has revealed the secret to Kamsa. So he was about to kill them. Your mother and father, they're old people, they're helpless. And somehow or other, Narada Muni convinced Kamsa, don't kill them. Get Krishna. It will only make things worse. So now, Devaki and Vasudev are in shackles of chains in a prison house and practically they're feeling Kamsa's anger, wrath, insults and his sword right above their head about to kill them. And he's going to kill Ugrasen and he's going to kill all the Yadus unless you come and rescue them. And Krishna was thinking according to our Acharyas in his heart. I'm the son of Nanda and Yashoda. In my two-armed form, I was born of Nanda and Yashoda as the brother of Yogamaya. But simultaneously, in my forearm form, I was born to Vasudeva and Devaki. But I've been so absorbed in the loving relationship with Nanda and Yashoda, I forgot all about that I was with Vasudeva and Devaki as their son. But now Akur is reminding me. And they are suffering. So I must help them. So Krishna agreed. And then Krishna went and explained, as, as did Akura, to Nanda Maharaj. That there's, they didn't talk about killing, about Kamsa's plan or the wrestling match. They only told Nanda Maharaj about the festival for the bow. And you're being invited. 
So immediately Nanda Maharaj said, yes, yes, we must go. The king is calling us. Let's bring him so many gifts. He's a, he's a demon. <laughs> but we must pacify him because he's our king and otherwise what will he do to our poor, little poor village? So they started arranging for ghee and other priceless products from the cows and other things that were from Vrindavan and load the carts, the ox carts and the bulls and we will go to Mathura. The word spread. The word spread that night that Akrura was bringing Krishna and Balaram to Mathura. And everyone who was there, their hearts were breaking. It was so pathetic. The Srimad Bhagavatam, Shukadeva Goswami, gives some little hints of the gopis' experiences. They're feeling... they gathered together. In the imminent separation from Krishna, and they were thinking that if he goes to Mathura, he may never return. On one level they were thinking, little Krishna whose feet are so soft and whose hands are like little lotus petals, he's going to have to fight against all these people with kamsa. So at first they were feeling very afraid for Krishna facing kamsa. But then they thought, look what he did to Bakasura, and look what he did to Agasura, and look what he did to Keshi and Aristasura. So there's nothing that kamsa can do against Krishna. What they were really afraid of is after he kills Kamsa, everyone in Mathura, all the Yadus, will totally fall in love with Krishna. Because he's so attractive, he will capture everybody's hearts. And the ladies of Mathura, they are princesses and queen, they're princesses. They're very highly beautiful and successful and, and, and cultured, as is everyone. And we're just simple little village girls. When everybody, all the Yadus, the princes and the princesses, when they fall in love with Krishna, they'll never allow him to leave, just as we don't want him to leave. How will he ever come back to us after he comes under the charms of their love for him? He will never return. Some of the gopis, they just close their eyes meditating on the beautiful threefold bending form of Krishna, whose complexion like a monsoon rain cloud, whose eyes like fully blossomed lotus petals, who would be in the forest sometimes ornamented with the dust of the cows or the minerals of Brajbhumi, wearing a garland, a mala of flowers that went extended below his knees, his cloth, 
beautiful golden like lightning and how he would stand and play his flute. They were thinking of his smiles, his glances. They were in the ultimate perfection of samadhi, standing their eyes closed, just meditating on Krishna's form. And as they were meditating on Krishna's form, they were thinking of separation from Krishna and torrents of tears were pouring from their eyes. While other gopis, they were meditating on Krishna's pastimes. Others were meditating on Krishna's personal reciprocal pastimes with them. And other gopis like Sri Radha were meditating on Krishna's words from his beautiful smiling mouth. That same mouth that played those beautiful melodies through his flute, how he would speak to them. And his words were such nectar. Sometimes expressing his love, sometimes joking, whatever he spoke, his words were nectar to their ears and their hearts. In this way, they were so absorbed and they could not possibly accommodate the idea that he was leaving. So they all gathered together and spent the whole night talking about Krishna. destiny, or what people call providence. How has providence become so cruel and has appeared before us in the form of a krura, which means not cruel? (laughs) But providence is so cruel. First, providence has given us the beautiful vision of the face of Mukunda. Everything in the whole creation, whatever is beautiful, the Gita says, is only a spark of the beauty of Krishna. Krishna is the unlimited, absolute whole of all beauty. His glance, his smile, after we have experienced that, How could it be taken away? What will we have to live for? And they were speaking among themselves that during the daytime, when Krishna goes to the pastures with his friends, the gopas, it is inconceivable and intolerable to be without him. The amount of pain of separation cannot be explained. But somehow or other, we live just waiting for the moment that Krishna's flute will be sounded and we will hear the buffalo horns of his friends and we will hear the mooing of the cows and the calves and we will know that Krishna has come home and we will see him coming back from the pastures. And each and every one of us, he will glance upon us. And with that glance, his heart's love will completely drown us in happiness. 
We can only survive those hours when he's away with the hope of his returning. But if he goes to Mathura, he may be gone for many days or he may never return. How? How will we survive? And this Akura, his name is not cruel, but he, he personally himself is cruel. How could he do this to us? He's the murderer of everyone in Gokul. He's the murderer of innocent women like us. And then they were speaking like this all night long, speaking Krishna's pastimes, speaking the beauty of Krishna's form, speaking of the imminent separation. And then one gopi said, the sun has risen. And look, Akrura has already performed his morning religious duties and he's calling Krishna Palaram to the chariot. At this point, the gopis, young gopis, although for social reasons, they were very shy about openly expressing their love for Krishna, now it didn't matter. Even if we're totally exposed, it's either that or we die in separation. There's nothing to lose. They went running to the chariot. Meanwhile, Krishna's mother, Yashoda, she couldn't bear the thought of little Krishna going to Mathura. She hid Krishna. where do you hide Krishna? She was in her own house. And Nanda Maharaj, the father, was going with them. So you showed him I, with her cloth, her sari, she actually covered up Krishna. <laughs> and as she was covering up Krishna, she was chanting mantras. Mantras for protection of Krishna. Her idea is, I'm hiding Krishna but this is not going to hide Krishna. It was a mother's way of expressing her love for Krishna. No, you can't take Krishna. And she was chanting these mantras. And Nanda Maharaj came and saw and told Yashoda Mai that I'm going with Krishna and I'm bringing so many others. I will leave Upananda and my elder brothers to be here in Brajbhumi to take care of all of you. And with my younger brothers, I will go. And I promise you, I will bring Krishna back in a few days. Don't be in so much distress. It's my promise. I will not return without Krishna. Yashoda Mai was in such grief that she brought Krishna before Akrura in the presence of Nanda and she put Krishna's hand in Akrura's hand and said, now I am entrusting the most sacred of my property to you with the 
with the responsibility you have to bring him back. Now, in the age of Kali, doing something like this doesn't sound so serious. But please understand, this was very serious. Because in the Manus Samhita and the Dharma Shastras, it is a great law that if you entrust your property to someone, it is their grave responsibility to return it. If they promise to return it, if you entrust it, there are severe laws that even the government must respect. What to speak of the laws of God and karma that you have to take responsibility for the property. So when Yashodamai put the hand of Krishna in the hand of Akrura, she knew she was... I don't trust you, Akrura. (laughs) But it is your responsibility to return Krishna because he's my property. And then she spoke to Nanda Maharaj. Essentially, she said to Nanda Maharaj, I don't have any trust in this Akrura. But I'm holding you fully responsible to bring my son back. And after doing that, she felt so hopeless, so helpless. Profuse tears poured from her eyes and she fainted on the ground. At that moment, everyone in Vrindavan wailed, crying, weeping, fainting to see Yashodamai's condition. And seeing how she was affecting everyone, she went to her home without Krishna. And the elder gopis and others came. Even though she was aggrieved so deeply, she understood as Brajeshwari, as the wife of Nanda, as the queen of Braj, it was her duty to console everybody else. So she was telling the other gopis that don't be in so much pain because Nanda Maharaj is going and so many men are going and the cowherd boys are going and they have promised to bring back Krishna. Nothing could harm Krishna. He will return. She didn't even believe what she was saying. (laughs) But still it was her duty, although she was grieving, to relieve others of their grief. So she was speaking to them in a way to console them. But they became so angry with Yashoda. They said, what you are speaking to us? Who are you? What are you doing? Krishna is more dear to us than our lives, our families, our homes, our everything. Krishna is like a little calf. And you, you Yashodamai, you have taken this innocent little calf and put him in the claws of a tiger in the form of Akrura. And you are consoling us? This house of yours, 
now it is bereft of Krishna, it should be burnt to the ground. And hearing their chastisement of love, Yashoda Mai could only cry. And then suddenly they all ran out toward the chariot to somehow or other stop Krishna. Everyone was crying. The young gopis, as Krishna boarded the chariot of Akrura, they all gathered around the chariot. And they gazed upon him so helplessly. Krishna could see in the eyes of the gopis that they were literally on the verge of death. As they were crying and crying, Krishna was so moved, he got off his chariot and actually seeing all the gopis crying, and seeing Krishna crying, everyone in Brajbhumi became totally bewildered, even Akrura. He was standing there with his eyes open, but he lost consciousness. And even Balaram was standing there, and seeing the love of the gopis, he was standing with his eyes open and lost consciousness. So everyone lost consciousness, except the gopis and Krishna. And Krishna got off the chariot and nobody could even see him getting off and went to a grove in the forest with gopis. And they surrounded him. And they were speaking their hearts. And he was speaking his heart. The gopis, we gave up everything for you. Our homes became forest and our forest became homes. Poison became nectar and nectar became poison because of our love for you. And it's explained what this means. They would leave their homes to go to the forest to be with Krishna. And then their forest became their home because they were with Krishna. And in separation from Krishna, when they were home, the home became like a forest without Krishna. And in their love for Krishna, it was so deep, it was so beautiful, it was so sweet, that even the most deadly poison would be like nectar to them. But in the absence of Krishna, they didn't want to live if someone gave them nectar to restore their lives, just to live in separation from Krishna would be worse than poison, that nectar. Krishna, you enchanted us with your flute and we came to the forest and you told us that even in a lifetime of Brahmak, you could never repay us for our love for you. We've given you our hearts, our everything. How is it that you will leave us? If you leave us, you will never return. As they were weeping and crying, Krishna became completely under the control of their love. 
in the clearing of this forest. And he was speaking to them. At that moment, Akrura came back to consciousness. And he saw Krishna wasn't on the chariot. And he didn't know where to find him. And nobody knew where he was. So he turned to Balaram. And he said, Balaram, your mother and father, Basudev and Devaki, Krishna's mother and father, they are being tortured. They are going to be killed. Please, please, if you don't help me find Krishna to bring him to Mathura, what will happen to them? Have pity on the people of Yadus. So Balaram, being a cowherd boy, knew exactly how to find Krishna. He started following the little footprints in the dust. And Akrura and Balaram, following those footprints, entered into that grove where Krishna was surrounded by the gopis and they were crying together and speaking together. And under the power of the gopis' love, Krishna could not even move. And Balaram approached. And then Akrura from a little distance began to speak. He said, Krishna, please, Nanda, I mean, Vasudeva and Devaki, they are your mother and father. They're old. They're suffering. They're going to be killed. They have never seen you since you were an infant child. Come and save their lives. Otherwise, you will be the cause of their death. And what to speak of Ukrasena, the great pious king who's your devotee. And what to speak of all the people of the Yadu dynasty, even Uddhava your cousin, your friend who loves you more dear than anything, what will happen to them? Kamsa is so cruel. And what about the Brahmins and the demigods? They will all suffer miserably unless you return. His words did not move Krishna. He was so under the shelter of the gopis' love. Finally, Akrura put straw between his teeth. And although he's a great Chatriya from the Yadu dynasty, he bowed to the feet of the gopis and with folded hands begged the gopis, you will be the cause of the death of Nanda, of Vasudev, Devaki, and all the Yadus, unless you allow Krishna to come. Nothing can harm him. Please, let him come. The gopis, they replied, you are a cheater. Whatever you speak is simply lies. Krishna is not the son of Vasudev and Devaki. What nonsense you are speaking. He is the son of Nanda and Yashoda. And you are speaking about Vasudeva and Devaki and other Yadus being killed in the future. 
in the between now and that time, so many solutions could be worked out. <laughs> but there is an immediate crisis. The immediate crisis is if you take Krishna out of Vrindavan, everyone in Gokul, all the cows, the calves, the birds, the deers, the gopas, the gopis, everyone will die immediately. You are saying we are the cause of the death of them. Let that wait. If you take Krishna, you will be the cause of every one of Vrindavan's immediate death. This is what we have to deal with. Out from here. <laughs> Akrura was helpless. And meanwhile, as Krishna was thinking about the plight of Vasudeva and Devaki, suffering so so much only because of him, because of their love for him, and how much they were immersed in loving separation. Krishna felt that he had to go. And he told the gopis, I will return. I will just go for a few days and I will return. Then Krishna, Akrura, brought the chariot right close to that little forest grove. And when Krishna saw Balaram silent as Akrura was speaking, he understood that Balaram was agreeing with Akrura that he must go to give shelter to his devotees. After all, the gopis and gopas, they loved Krishna in separation. But Nanda and Yashoda were in shackles in prison and were being tortured and was about to be killed. This was an emergency. Krishna got back on the chariot with Balaram and Akura. At that moment, the gopis were crying so loud that all the residents of Vrindavan, they all understood where Krishna was. They all came running. Nanda, Yashoda, the chariot was surrounded with the cows, the bulls, the deers, the peacocks, the gopas, the gopis, older, younger, the grandparents, the parents, the children, the grandchildren, everyone was gathered around that chariot. And they realized Akrura was about to take Krishna away. The gopis, helplessly, they were gazing upon Krishna. Some of them were totally paralyzed. They couldn't even move. All they could do was cry. Others, with all of their might, they, were, they grabbed onto the chariot and was holding it so it couldn't move. Other gopis, they laid their bodies under the chariot wheels. Either they would stop the chariot from moving or if the chariot did move, their lives would be ended. 
which was their wish. Because it would be unbearable to live in separation from Krishna. Meanwhile, the cows were weeping, the calves were weeping, everyone was weeping, all standing around the chariot. According to Sanatana Goswami, Govardhan Hill and all the mountains of Brajbhumi were in such agony that huge boulders of stones in the form like tears were falling down from them. The leaves were shriveling up. Every plant shriveled up. Lakes evaporated. The Yamuna River began to flow upstream. Stones were crying. And the birds, the birds of Brindavan, they were flying overhead, right over the chariot, crying, chirping, flying in different kinds of circles. It was such a pathetic scene. Jiva Goswami explains that even the stones that were a far distance from Brajbhumi had to cry at that moment. And Krishna, seeing this whole experience around him of all the different inhabitants of Vrindavan expressing their love and separation, begging him to stay, Krishna began to faint. And Akrura got behind him to hold him up. Actually, Sanatana Goswami tells, it appeared to everyone that he was holding up Krishna from fainting. But deeper in his heart, he understood that seeing the love of all the residents of Vrindavan, Krishna was certainly going to get down from the chariot again. So he was holding him on the chariot. (laughs) And at that moment, it was now or never, Akrora (laughs) cracked his whip and told the horses to go. Now, somehow or other, these were Kamsa's horses. <laughs> so somehow or other, they were influenced to go. And the chariot began, to, and Akrura was a very good chariot driver, because as he, he went very fast, and meanwhile, some gopis were laying under the wheels, and other gopis were holding on to the chariot and running along with it, and everyone was crying Krishna's names, Govinda, Damodara, Madhava. And Akrura was somehow or other going around all the bodies of the different animals were trying to block him, humans were trying to block him, gopas go, everyone. And he was, he was somehow or other steering so that he did not crush anyone. And eventually, the chariot 
roadway toward Mathura. The gopis and the gopas, some were fainting, some were running after the chariot. Everyone was loudly chanting the holy name. Brijabhasis from a distance they only saw the flag of the chariot they stood watching soon in the horizon the flag disappeared and all they saw was the dust from the wheels of the chariot After some time, even the dust of the wheels disappeared. And the gopis and gopas stood with unblinking eyes, just looking into the horizon of where the chariot once was. Srila Prabhupada explains, they stood motionless like painted pictures. But before he left, Krishna promised them all, I will return. In few days, I will return. And that promise was the hope that that promise would be fulfilled is the singular thing that kept all the residents of Vrindavan alive. As they rode, they came to the Yamuna River, Brahmahrata, which is a lake near the Yamuna River. And there, Akura wanted Krishna and Balaram. They came down off the chariot and they sipped some waters from the Yamuna and then came back on the chariot. After performing some little devotional activities, rituals in the Yamuna, because Yamuna is liquid brain, Akrura asked Krishna Balaram's permission to take his bath. And they were nicely seated on the chariot. As he took his bath, he saw Krishna and Balaram in the river. How is this? He went back to the chariot and saw they were in the chariot. He went back to the river and then he saw Krishna Balaram manifest the form of Anantashesha and the Supreme Lord Narayan. But Akura knew that ultimately the threefold bending form of Krishna is the ultimate cause of all causes. And in these beautiful verses that we are reading today, Akrura is offering prayers. Prayers to Krishna and Balaram. 
how special it is. Because Krishna knew that Akrura was ultimately doing his will. He was reciprocating with Akrura in such a wonderful way, revealing these incredible miracles to Akrura. And these prayers that Akrura are offering are so sacred and so significant. We read in the four Vedas, in the Upanishads, in the Puranas, in the Itihastas, in the Samitas, so many countless prayers by devas, by sages and rishis, by paramhamsas. But the acharyas explain there are nine processes of devotional service. Sravana kirtana smarana bandana pada sevana daskade pujana sakijana atmani vedana. And there is a particular personality that is focused upon among all other personalities because the super excellence of their um, practice of the particular method is so unparalleled, so special, so exemplary. Sravana, the process of hearing. Any one of these processes of devotional service or the combination of any of them can bring us the highest perfection if we practice sincerely. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu explained, what does it mean to practice sincerely? To be sincere means we follow in the footsteps of those who have perfected. Parikshit Maharaj, he attained ultimate perfection just by hearing Srimad Bhagavatam. Shukadev Goswami attained ultimate perfection by kirtan, by glorifying the names and pastimes of the Lord, his qualities, his beautiful form, by speaking, by singing. Prahlad Maharaj attained perfection by the depths of his remembrance of Krishna at every moment. And similarly, the example of attaining perfection among all other examples that is most highlighted is how one can attain perfection for the supreme absolute truth, Krishna, through offering prayers. Akrura is that person. And it's so incredible the inconceivable circumstances in which he's offering his prayers. And today we are reading these prayers. Simultaneously, he is recognizing Krishna as the absolute truth, the cause of all of creation. 
the power that generates and sustains and ultimately destroys the entire cosmic creation and all the material worlds. Recognizing that. Because you see, unless we understand the greatness of God, we cannot go beyond that into the intimacies of the depths of love for God. The gopis, they were not thinking of Krishna as God. They were thinking of him as their child or their lover. And even when Gargamuni said who he really was, and even when they would see him engage in these incredible activities, it was a detail for them. They knew it. They knew Krishna was God, but it was such a detail that it was overshadowed by the intimacy of their love. So you see all the realizations of the jnanis and the karmi yogis and the, and the astanga yogis and, the, and, and, and all the various realizations of the heavenly worlds, of Brahman liberation, of the supreme almighty lord of Vaikuntha. They were all included. The gopis had full, total realization of all of these. They were the ultimate um, authorities of the Upanishads. But they were all little details. Krishna is the creator, Krishna is Vishnu, Krishna is Narasimha, Krishna is Varaha. They were details. They knew he was that. They knew he could kill Kamsa effortlessly. But their love for him intimately as a lover, as a child, as a friend, and his love for them reciprocating was so deep and so sweet and so spontaneous that that the Aishwarya, the greatness of Krishna, became such a detail, it was invisible to them. Because it interfered with the spontaneity of their love. Akura could understand this. And here he is completely taking shelter and surrendering his heart, his soul, his life to Krishna. Since tomorrow the continuation of these prayers will be, I do not want to speak. You could come to class tomorrow. (laughs) And the next day and the next day and the next day. Thank you very much.